This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This is episode one of We Came to Win. To listen to all episodes, head over to Spotify and listen for free. In the World Cup, there are moments. Moments that transcend sport. That are about much more than what happens on the field. They say something about what it is to be alive. To feel pain. To feel joy. Agony ecstasy, triumph, and defeat. July 4th, 1990 is one of these moments. On the field, it's England versus West Germany in the World Cup semifinal. The teams tied 1-1 over 90 minutes and the game's now in extra time. Both teams have played relentlessly, have pushed each other to the brink of exhaustion. And perhaps no one has played harder than England's star player, Paul Gascoigne. He's been all over the field tonight, doing everything he can to drive England forward. But there's something weighing on his mind, and on the mind of every England supporter watching this game. Earlier in the competition, Gascoigne received a yellow card. One more yellow, and he'll be banned from England's next game. And if they win tonight, that next game will be the World Cup final. A game that Gascoigne is desperate to play in. One he's dreamt about since he was a boy. And the England fans know the team needs him if they're going to stand any chance of winning the World Cup. In the ninth minute of extra time, Gascoigne gets the ball in the midfield. And he bursts forward, driving at the German defense. He beats one player, then another. But his next touch is too heavy and the ball is getting away from him. In desperation, he lunges and clatters into the legs of a German defender. Gascoigne holds up his hands as if to say, I didn't touch him, ref. Everyone holds their breath. The referee reaches into his pocket. Yellow card. On number 14, Berthold, Gascoigne has had his second yellow card of the competition. Look at him, he's shattered. Really, there was no... In that moment, Paul Gascoigne knows he's done. He's banned from the next game, the World Cup final. When that dawns on him, his lip begins to quiver and his eyes fill with tears. He just crumples, absolutely crumples. This doesn't happen to, to the British. <laughs> don't cry in public. I don't even cry. That's certainly how you're brought up. And suddenly you've got this, uh, this hero of the England team with his face just like a wet paper bag. And uh, I think just the whole nation wanted to give him a hug. The game goes on, but the England fans watching at home can see Paul Gascoigne's dream and their own slipping further away. And they need this win. They need this World Cup. Because the years of English soccer that came before this World Cup were bleak, dismal, and even deadly. Today, we're going to tell you about the hard years that led up to this moment and how these tears helped save English soccer. 
I'm Nando Vila, and this is We Came to Win, a new show from Gimlet Media that tells the stories behind the World Cup's most iconic moments. Over the next eight weeks leading up to the World Cup, we'll tell you stories behind the games that soccer fans can never forget and that the wider world couldn't ignore. Think of English soccer today, and your mind probably wanders to the English Premier League. Every weekend, millions of people around the world tune in to watch Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, and Arsenal battle it out. The English Premier League has some of the world's best players and grand stadiums steeped in history and soccer culture. It's synonymous with glamour and prestige and excitement. But rewind 30 years, back to when Paul Gascoigne was playing, And this image of English soccer, it's unthinkable. Because back then, English soccer was a disaster. It was dire. It was so dire. It's unimaginable now. I mean, somebody born in the 90s or or, or more recently simply would not recognize what a dismal wreckage of a state the game was in. That's soccer writer Pete Davies. Now, there were a few reasons for the dismal wreckage Pete describes. The type of soccer being played in England back then could be pretty crappy. Basically a bunch of hairy dudes smashing long balls up and down the field. And then there were the stadiums. A lot of them were built in the 1890s when the first professional clubs were formed. And now, almost 100 years later, they were starting to fall apart. You know, you you climbed crumbling concrete steps and then you crossed the threshold and then a kind of muddy patch opened up in front of you and you were hit full in the face with this waft of fried onions and piss. That was soccer writer and broadcaster Ian McIntosh. And this is sports journalist Matt Scott. The the things that you would see, blokes giving the the, the wanker sign to to the opposition, goading each other, you know, calling each other wankers. You'd stand on terraces And if people needed to urinate, they'd go up to the back of the terraces, urinate against the back wall. So by about midway through the first half, you'd literally be standing in torrents of piss. Uh, It was... uh, Vile. (laughs) It was awful. (laughs) So never wear wear your best shoes to football back in the 80s because it wouldn't be good. The food sold at the stadiums was just as bad. There was this one soup-like drink that is kind of like a symbol of all this unpleasantness. It's called Bovril. Bovril is a uh, meat extract. It's a really strong smelling and very strong tasting beef drink. It's like gravy, but on steroids. So yeah, it's liquefied beef. Kind of like a hot hamburger smoothie. But it wasn't just the crumbling stadiums, crap soccer, and bad food keeping the fans away. There was another problem. Violence. Specifically the violence caused by football hooligans. Police battle to control the hooligans among the 10,000 Millwall fans. 
They get this reputation and they try to live up to it because I think it makes them feel good. Cars and houses were damaged and local people told of a terrifying charge by 300 fans. The court was told of a six-year catalogue of violence carried out by football hooligans calling themselves the Chelsea mob. The press dubbed hooliganism the English disease. And in 1985, the Sunday Times described soccer as, quote, a slum sport played in slum stadiums, increasingly watched by slum people who deter decent folk from turning up. Now, this wasn't true of every fan, but it was the image the press latched onto, and it stuck. Pete Davies. The whole perception of the, of the football fan was that there would be violence. It was so two-dimensional. It was such a cartoon view of things. But that's how it was perceived. And then, English soccer hit rock bottom on April 15th, 1989. That day, Liverpool and Nottingham Forest played in England's biggest knockout competition, the FA Cup. It was the semi-final, and the game was played at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield. It was here that everything that was bad about English soccer came together. And the result was deadly. Before we go any further with this story, a warning. This next section is upsetting and graphic, and you'll hear some explicit language. Our producer, Matt Nelson, spoke to three Liverpool fans about what happened on a day that changed football forever. Talk me through, how, how were you feeling like when you opened your eyes that morning? What, what was running through your head? Great to be alive. 20 years of age, good circle of friends. Loved me football, loved me team. That's Damien Cavanaugh. This is Adrian Tempany. It's a lovely day. You know, it's a beautiful spring day. Uh, it's very clear, very calm, and it felt like the beginning of spring, really. And this is Richie Greaves. You're a young lad. You're looking forward to a day out with your mates. And then you're looking forward to getting back to Liverpool and having a few pints that night. Uh, what could go wrong? You know, it's, it was like that. These three didn't know each other. They were all just on their way to see the same game, excited to watch their team and enjoying the sunshine. But the venue for the game didn't feel like the stage for a great sporting occasion. Hillsborough was kind of emblematic of the trouble with English stadiums at the time. It was built in the 1890s. Parts of it had been updated in the 60s and 70s, but by 1989, it was clear that Hillsborough had seen better days. It was very dated. It was dreary. It was ramshackle. It looked like it needed, you know, more than just a lick of paint. Worst of all was the section for the away fans. This part of the stadium had no seats. It was standing room only. That was the end designated to Liverpool supporters in 1989. They called these sections terraces. They would be slanted from back to front. So at the back was the highest point. The front of the terrace would be the lowest point. As you'd see in an old kind of amphitheater, that fundamental design. These terraces were split into a series of steel cages with high fences. They called them pens. And they were designed to keep hooligans in check and stop fan violence from spilling onto the field. You had about a 13, 14 foot high fence at the front with spikes coming back in towards you. You had a, a huge... Um, steel fences either side and you had a, a wall about 15 foot high behind you there was no way out and um, once you were once you'd entered that terrace that was it richie damien and adrian entered the stadium and went into pens three and four 
the two large steel cages behind the goal. There was room in other sections, but a tunnel that led to pens three and four was the first thing you saw when you entered that part of the stadium. So that's where most people went. There was no system to evenly distribute fans and no way to count how many were in each pen. The crowd built up steadily, slowly, steadily and slowly. And so then you made up, you know, it's great. And with all these people who like-minded, I mean, there's that camaraderie and the crowd builds up slowly and it's getting more congested. It soon became clear that there were too many fans in pens three and four and it was starting to get really tight in there. The, the pressure really increased by, by degrees. It was, it was like being stuck in a vice. The pressure would just go up by degree and you think, well, it can't get any tighter now. And then the pressure would just go up. It would just be cranked up just a little. And then things got even worse. Outside the stadium, the crowd was moving too slowly through the turnstiles and a bottleneck formed. To let people in more easily, police officers opened a gate so around 2,000 Liverpool supporters could enter the stadium. Most of them went straight into pens three and four, where it was already dangerously overcrowded. As the crush developed and got worse and worse, we're watching um, people trying to escape over a 14-foot high fence with spikes coming in towards you. They're being passed up by people in the terrace to, to grab onto the spikes at the top and they were trying to drag themselves over the spikes. And the police were pushing people back in. They thought it was a pitch invasion. The game kicked off at 3 p.m. as planned. But just a few yards away from the action, things were getting more and more dire. I didn't even know the game had kicked off, which shows you how desperate the situation was in Pentre at the time. There's a, a memorable moment in the game. Peter Beardsley, the Liverpool striker, hits the crossbar. There's the corner, and the crossbar saving. I didn't know that had happened. I'd zoned it out. As the crush got worse, Damien, Richie, and Adrian started to realise that they were in real danger. I began to look around, could see people slowly passing out. People were starting to, you know, their faces were changing colour. Um, they were being asphyxiated. Uh, some were crying, some were pleading for help, some were panicking. Some had thrown up, um, some had vomit streaming out of their nostrils and down their chin because they were being crushed so badly. As he fought to pull breath into his lungs, it began to dawn on Adrian that he might not make it home from the match that day. I just had to, you know, take the time in my head to, to say goodbye to people, say goodbye to my, my family and my mates and my girlfriend. And, um, you know, it's a case of preparing yourself to die. The men knew that they had to try to find a way out. At this point, bodies were so tightly jammed together that Damien noticed some fans were crawling over the top of the crowd to escape. He decided to do the same. So I crawled to the front. As I crawled to the front, I grabbed hold of the top of the frame at the gate. And um, a policeman at the gate grabbed hold of me. And if I had a coat on, it'd be like by the lapels, but I only had a T-shirt on. And he pushed me back. And he shouted at me, you fucking swat. And I just, I was like incredulous. I'm like, I'm not going to argue with the police, but I'm not fucking going back in there. That was a second that took forever. 
So I tried to force my way past and he helped me then. He dragged me and threw me and I landed almost head first onto the pitch. I heard this shouting. Um, there'd been a lot of screaming, but this was, this was aggressive. This was people shouting at us. Uh, I just managed to kind of open my eyes and I could see that the, there was a gate in the, the fence at the front of the terrace. This was the exit gate. You know, I said to myself, if you can hang on here for, for two minutes, you're going to live. Uh, we got pulled up and over into pen two. From there, we got out onto the pitch and almost straight away, I, I saw a young lad lying on the pitch. He was about 14 years of age. And um, he was having CPR performed on his chest. After a while, he, he was sick and, and um, he started to breathe and we all like cheered. And, and then with, within no time at all, they'd given up again. He'd gone. To, to see, see someone dying right in front of your, your eyes like that, a, a young kid, um, took your breath away and obviously has haunted you ever since, you know. 96 people died as a result of the disaster. The city of Liverpool was devastated. The sport was devastated. You just don't go to a game and think that you might not come back. But that's what happened. As news of Hillsborough began to spread, the Liverpool fans became the scapegoat. The narrative was that football fans were all hooligans, that they must have been to blame for what happened that day. Adrian Tempany again. So about five or six of us had been there. We went around a corner to a local pub in Nottingham about six or seven o'clock that night. Uh, and the barmaid took my order. She could see I was in a bit of a state. She said, are you okay? I said, no, I was just, just come back from Hillsborough. And she just said, yeah, bloody Liverpool fans again, isn't it? So even at seven o'clock that night, those of us who were there and had survived were basically being told that we were the cause of it. The lie had already got out. And in the coming days, it spread. On April 19th, the front page of The Sun, the most popular British newspaper at the time, said that the Liverpool fans were to blame for the disaster. The headline simply read, The Truth. According to The Sun, The fans had um, urinated on police office trying to give mouth to mouth and pickpocketed from the dead. Can't believe how calm I'm saying that. I'll never get over that headline, as long as I live. That was Damien Kavanaugh. Here's how Richie Greaves remembers it. That was hard to take, because when you've, when you've seen something with your own eyes, and then you're, you're reading utter nonsense like that, and the rest of the country believe that nonsense. A government report later found that the crush that day was not the fault of the Liverpool fans. It came down to an old stadium, overcrowding, and a failure of the police to react appropriately when things started to go wrong. The Suns' claims have since been retracted and the Liverpool fans exonerated. But the damage had been done to Liverpool and to the sport. This was English football's rock bottom. The year after Hillsborough was a World Cup year. The 1990 tournament was to be held in Italy, one of the great soccer nations. The world's best players, Maradona, Van Basten, Mateus, would line up in some of the world's best stadiums. But the England team only just managed to qualify for the tournament, 
And after all of the negative headlines about the fans, a lot of people wondered if they should even show up. Now all attention will be focused not on the team's chances, but the prospect of hordes of soccer hooligans draped in the England colours wreaking havoc abroad yet again. According to newspaper reports, after our last World Cup qualifier against Sweden, the level of hooliganism was so disgraceful, even Mrs Thatcher was expressing concern over whether England should even be allowed to play in the championships. That's right. Margaret Thatcher was so afraid that English hooligans would disgrace the country at the 1990 World Cup that she considered withdrawing the team. Then there were the tournament's hosts. The Italians weren't exactly thrilled about the idea of thousands of hooligans showing up on their doorstep. If you say the word hooligan, that meant English, nothing else. The word was always associated to English football. That's Filippo Ricci. He's an Italian soccer journalist. Filippo was 20 in 1990, and he clearly remembers the reputation of English fans back then. No, no, I can, I can describe. Yeah, yeah. Bold, yeah, shaved head, bold, tattoos, drunk, and uh, with a shirt of his club or with a shirt of England, and um, yeah, a flag sometimes, and uh, sneakers, uh, jeans, and that's it. Bare chest uh, if it's in the summer or sometimes in the winter too. But once it became clear that England was definitely coming to the tournament, the Italian authorities came up with a plan to contain these bare-chested Englishmen. A big cage called Sardinia. (laughs) An entire island uh, that was transformed in a cage. Sardinia is an island off the coast of Italy's mainland. It's only accessible via boat or plane. That year, England was the only team based on the island. The idea was that it would be easier to police the fans if they were all contained in one place. It wasn't just the fans that were expected to disgrace the nation. People thought the team probably would too. The last time England played in a major tournament, the European Championships of 1988, they lost every single game. It was a humiliation. And this was largely the same group of players. The press predicted disaster. One newspaper ran a headline that read, Donkeys, World Cup champions? Hee-haw, what a joke. Coming up after the break, these donkeys go to the World Cup and surprise everyone. If ever anybody had any doubt, you know, why do people love football? Anybody that has that question, if you could have spent those couple of hours watching that game, then you would know. So it's the summer of 1990. The England team has qualified for the World Cup, and according to most English newspapers, the team doesn't stand a chance. But despite all the negative press, some England fans were still looking forward to the tournament. They had faith that maybe this year things would be different, that these players could do the country proud. Among those fans, Matt Scott, Pete Davies, and Ian McIntosh. You heard from all of them earlier. Here they are describing their favorite players from the 1990 team. Well, I always used to play in goal at school, so my hero was Peter Shilton, the goalkeeper. Across the game there for Brooking. He flashed time, and what a save! What a monumental save by Peter Shilton. Who looked kind of like a shaved gorilla, with shoulders as broad as a bridge, and tight curly hair. And he was there, and he was one of my idols. Then you had Terry Butcher. Oh, what an important pull in by Terry Butcher. 
but England just cannot afford... Terrifying. Um, a gigantic leviathan of a defender. And Terry Butcher absolutely epitomised English yeoman valour. You know, get knocked senseless and don't fall over. And then, of course, there was, there was Gary Lineker. Gary Lineker was, was an unbelievable finisher. The absolute golden boy. And, uh, yeah, he was the, uh, the, the talisman, certainly, of the experienced players. But, of course, there was someone else. By the name of Paul Gascoigne. Otherwise known as Gaza. For fans looking for a player to root for, there was no one better than this guy. He was someone they could really relate to. You know how a lot of athletes look kind of otherworldly? They have these physiques that almost don't belong in a normal setting. It's like they've been plucked out of Greek mythology or something. But Gaza, well, put it this way, his physique was very normal. Uh, he looks like a chubby, chubby-cheeked kid from school. Um, he's a bit chubby. I mean, right now, in, in 2017, you couldn't imagine him being a footballer. Um, had a real propensity to eat crisps and sweets and drink fizzy drinks. That was basically his childhood diet. Oh, yeah. Gaza loved to eat. Here's an old clip of him taking a TV reporter to his favorite cafe. Yeah, I used to come here to the, for the wrong reasons. I used to have, like, oh, chocolate fudge cakes, cream cakes, chips, ice cream... Going into the 1990 World Cup, Gaza was untested at the international level. He was 23 and he'd only played for England nine times. But despite his appearance and his inexperience, the guy could play. I mean, he could really play. Just such a creative player always backed himself to beat people from, from wherever he, he was on the pitch. And he'd just run at people, really low centre of gravity, um, incredible close touch and technique. The awareness of everyone around him was almost supernatural. He was the full package, he, as, as a footballer. On the 11th of June, 1990, England played their first game of the World Cup. The match was against Ireland, a decent team, but not one that was expected to go far in the tournament. If Gaza and the rest of the team were going to prove everyone wrong, they'd need to start here. The game kicks off, and England take the lead. But in the 73rd minute, this happens. Here's Sheedy. Oh, he's in here. And he's equalized, Kevin Sheedy. Kevin Sheedy scored for Ireland, and the match ended in a 1-1 tie. More significant was the performance. England were atrocious. Pete Davies watched that game. It was awful. <laughs> it was dismal. It was just absolutely the worst example of gormless hoofing. To the doubters, it was typical England. Confirmation that they couldn't play the beautiful game that they didn't belong at the World Cup. That doubt followed the team around like a dark cloud. And it was back home too, in pubs and in living rooms across the country. How could anyone have faith in England 
and in soccer if this was how it was going to be. The team and the country desperately needed some positive vibes. And then they got them. From an unexpected place. A hit pop song. Let me explain. Since 1970, the England team has released an official team song for every World Cup. They're usually awful. A bunch of awkward-looking soccer dudes clapping out of time and shouting corny lyrics. Like this. Or this one. See what I mean? But in the summer of 1990, England had a song that was cool. And it was written and performed by a cool band, New Order. They sang that song, Blue Monday. You know the one. How does it feel to treat me like you do? You know what I'm talking about. They were critically acclaimed and actually popular. And their lyrics didn't sound like they were written using a rhyming dictionary. And when New Order wrote England's song for 1990, they didn't write a song that was just for soccer fans. They wrote one that was for everyone. It was called World in Motion. But no, I, I know that blokes who, who were not naturally into football loved that song. And it was something that did ignite enthusiasm for the tournament. For New Order to suddenly turn up and do a proper song it set a very, very different tone. Kind of more grown up and, and professional. It's very good. It's a, it's a cracking track. It sounded different to any football song that anybody had ever heard. There's more to this than just a catchy melody, though. Listen to the chorus. Love's got the world in motion. Not exactly in keeping with the reputation of English soccer, is it? At its core, the song had a simple message for fans. That hooliganism is not really the way to reflect the fact that you are following the England team. It's uh, certainly not a call to arms in any aggressive sense. It's uh, much more amenable than that. That's David Bloomfield, and he would know. He was the England team's press officer back in 1990, and it was his idea to ask New Order to do the song. David loved World in Motion, and he would put it on in the bus as the team headed to their World Cup games. Well, I would always put it on the bus just as we got to, I try and work out, we're about three or four minutes away from the uh, stadium, so I'd always put it on so it would be rattling out at full volume as we approached the stadium on match day. I imagine it would look something like this. Like... Picture a bunch of English dudes in their mid-twenties wearing tracksuits, sitting on a bus, and singing at the top of their lungs. It's almost like that scene in Almost Famous, where they sing Tiny Dancer. I think it was something that helped bond the team uh, together because they could all sort of sing it at the top of their voices. We had our own tune and it was one that they could get behind and it was a nice uh, rallying call. 
When the team bus rolled into the Stadio Santelia for England's second game of the tournament, they'd need all of that team spirit. At this point, they had a draw to their name, and that came in a terrible performance against Ireland. England's next opponent? Holland. They were the reigning European champions and one of the favorites. England were expected to get hammered. But Bobby Robson, the team's coach, decided to try a new approach. He switched to a different formation, one designed to get the best out of Gaza. Here's Ian McIntosh. Something weird happened. England played really well. Um, they didn't win. It was still nil-nil. But the, there was a sort of progressive football. Um, Gascoigne started to come alive. Here's goes to the left. Now goes to the right. Still Gascoigne. It's a great run this by Paul Gascoigne. Absolutely brilliant. Yep, Paul Gascoigne, the chubby man baby who loved to stuff his face with cake, was dominating Holland. It, it was just a glimpse of something, something a little bit better. And it felt like, well, if we can play like that, ooh, yeah. So in a word, hope. England needed to win their final group match against Egypt to stay in the competition. Again, people expected them to mess it up somehow. They figured that the Holland game was a cruel mirage of glory. But it wasn't. England won and went through to the knockout stage of the tournament, the round of 16. There they faced Belgium, and they won again. The deciding goal set up by Gaza. Gascoigne shaping to take it. And chipped in. And volleyed in! And it's there by David Platt! England were now in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and people were starting to look at the team differently. Well, you'd see the mood change in the newspapers, for starters. Um, newspapers in that time never being particularly slow to judge the public mood and then, and then go with it. So you'd have months of negative press, and then all of a sudden it'd be, let's get behind our boys. Oh, hello, chaps. Well done. Um, but you'd also, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd sense it around school. You'd overhear conversations. Teachers would start talking about it. Even my mum at that point was, was starting to mention the World Cup, and, and that almost never happened. Um, and, and, yeah, it was you, everywhere you went, you were starting to feel a little bit of vibe picking up. The country was also starting to really fall for Gaza. His performances on the field were exceptional, but off it, he was so relatable. It was like he was a young guy on vacation in Italy who just happened to be playing in the world's largest soccer tournament. Here's the team's press officer, David Bloomfield, again. He had uh, so much energy and good nature about him. You couldn't uh, fail to uh, like him, really. I mean, I, I remember one occasion around the swimming pool area in the, the hotel when the players have got some... Uh, relaxation time and they're allowed to uh, sunbathe for an allotted time 10-15 minutes so Gaza disappears and he comes back using uh, toilet paper to dress himself up as an Egyptian mummy and he just sort of waddles into the uh, into, view, into the players view around the swimming pool he's, he's good natured really and it wasn't just the team that was being seen in a new light the fans were too now, England fans weren't angels by any means. They got drunk, they took their shirts off, they sang loudly. And that kind of boisterous behavior led to a few clashes with the Italian police. But the world's worst fears weren't realized. The vast majority of the fans hadn't gone to Italy to smash things up. There was a realization that not all English followers of the English team were violent, moronic lunatics. That started sinking in. Watching at home in England was Hillsborough survivor Adrian Tempany. 
For him, Italian 90 was kind of a mass epiphany for everyone in England. It just woke a lot of people up. I think you also possibly get to a point, Hillsborough was the lowest point, obviously, in English football history. Well, you can't go any lower. I think possibly you can only start to go up. Uh, and I remember being in pubs watching the World Cup and the biggest cheer really in the pub, in the bar, wasn't for the team, it wasn't for the action. It was when the cameras cut to the England fans on the terraces. People were, were literally applauding these fans just for being there because they'd put up with so much. They'd been treated like, like crap. England's quarterfinal match was against Cameroon. Libby in possession, the referee looks at his watch. And they won. England are in the semi-final. Three goals to two. They were now in the semi-final of the World Cup. Just one game, just 90 minutes away from the World Cup final. Standing in their way, West Germany, the best team at the tournament. Live, uninterrupted coverage now with World Cup Grandstand. Remember how at the start of the show, I said that soccer wasn't on television a lot back in the late 80s? There are only three countries left who could win the 1990 World Cup. Argentina, West Germany, and England. Well, that changed in 1990 when over 25 million people tuned in to watch this match. That's almost half of the entire population of England. What the other half are doing, we'll leave up to them. Among those watching, soccer writer Ian McIntosh. He was 12 years old at the time and was watching alone in his bedroom. I had a black and white TV that you had to hand uh, hand tune with a, a little dial on the side. Um, and I started watching it on there um, on my own. Um, and then I, I became aware of uh, some noise downstairs and it turned out my mum was watching it on our colour TV as well. So um, I, I was able to actually go down and actually watch a game with someone and very rare for my mum to be showing any kind of interest in football. Um, and Why was your mum wanting to watch it? I think... At that point, everybody was was starting to get into it. Everyone was suddenly realising that England were one game away from a World Cup final. Pete Davies was in Italy and had tickets for the game. The match was played at the Estadio delle Alpi in Turin, a million miles away from fried onions and piss and bovril. The stadium was absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And walking up to the stadium, it was otherworldly, you know, that that wonderful, wonderful sweeping roof. And, you know, like sails against the mountain backdrop. It was a beautiful summer night in Turin. And the game England and West Germany played matched the setting perfectly. It was, it was, it was everything that you grow up imagining a perfect game to be. Everything you could ever ask for in a football match was in that football match. You know, you had the heartbreaking nature of Germany's first goal, the deflected shot that loops up in slow motion past Peter Shilton, who can't quite backpedal close enough to get to it. And so even if that's your first ever football match, you're watching that thinking, oh, that's not, oh, that's not, come on. And then you've got Lineker, the golden boy, getting England back into it. If you look at the replay, there's never any doubt. One touch off the thigh, bang, that's going in. If ever anybody had any doubt, 
you know, why do people love football? Anybody that has that question, if you could have spent those couple of hours watching that game, then you would know. At the end of regulation time, the teams were tied one all. So extra time was played to try and find a winner. By this point, the players were exhausted. It was a hot summer night, and they'd already played a grueling 90 minutes. And now they had to play an extra 30 minutes to see who would go on to the final. Every player had sweated through their 90s nylon jerseys, but they still kept going. Gaza, the talisman, kept going. He seemed to be all over the place, constantly involved in the action. But in the 98th minute, he went in a little too hard on the tackle. Number 14, Berthold. Gascoigne has had his second yellow card of the competition. And here is a moment that almost brings tears to his eyes. The referee's yellow card means that he'll be banned from England's next game. And if they win tonight, that will be the World Cup final. So here it is, the image from the start of the show. Gaza, the embodiment of despair. His face wet with sweat and tears. He just crumples, absolutely crumples. And uh, I think just the whole nation wanted to give him a hug. Yeah, we didn't see Paul Gascoigne as a man then. He was only in his early 20s, very early 20s. So he was a young kid, really, in football terms and certainly in life terms. And he had that clownish infantilism about him too. You know, he was a, a real young boy whom the nation had taken to his hearts. It was our, our sympathy, our empathy with, with this character who brought so much, to, so much joy to us having to suffer that. Despite the tears, Gaza didn't stop. He was out of the World Cup final, but he still wanted to get England there. So he played on as the tears continued to fall. Played on until the referee blew the final whistle. After extra time, the game was still tied 1-1. Then, then you've got penalties, and then you've got an entire nation sitting there realizing that they're, they're that close to a World Cup final. To begin with, both teams matched each other shot for shot. But Stuart Pearce missed England's fourth kick and the Germans scored. England's fifth penalty taker, Chris Waddle, had to score to keep them in the game. Have to score the next one to stay in it. Would you want to be Chris Waddle now or even Stuart Pearce? Yeah, so Waddle just doesn't look right. Uh, Waddle's head is down. He's slouching slowly. The run-up's too quick. Everything is wrong about this penalty. And then he just, he snaps at it. He snaps at the shot. And England are out of the World Cup. And it's not just over, it's really, really over. Because England missed their fourth and fifth penalty. Oh God, it was never going in, was it? No, it was never going in. From the minute he started his run up. You know, the whole weight of the world is on his shoulders, which it was. You know, has anybody ever ballooned a penalty further over the bar than that one? You know, that was right on its way to Rosehead from the the minute he started running towards it. It was just... (sighs) What can you say? and with it, the hopes and dreams of every Englishman. 
the, the worst thing was the finality of it. That once that penalty had been missed, and, and so missed, um, it was like, that's it. That's, that's, there's no way back. There's, it's gone. We've, we've been a second away from the World Cup final. And now, nothing. Gone. Describe the emotions when, um, when that kind of fairy tale came to an end and uh, England were out of the competition. Very, very hard. Just, you know, the bottom dropping out, everything stopping. Very, very hard. Kind of unimaginable. You know, how has, how has this happened? How has this happened? For something, for, you know, like... So it's a massive, massive halt for something that had gone on so long and that had built up to such a pitch to fall in, in, in a second, to be gone, to be taken, to be over, just in a second like that. It's not just the game, it's everything that's built up to it for months and, and to come to that moment of just, you know, click, that's it. There was a silver lining, though. England hadn't won the World Cup, but there was a sense that they gained something else. It was an absolutely extraordinary and uplifting experience during the course of the weeks leading up to the tournament, and most importantly, obviously, during the weeks of the tournament, to have the entire image of English football turned around and everything that we have in football now, in my view, stems from what happened in Italy in 1990 during those few weeks. Just how big a turnaround this was was evident when the team got back to England. An open-top bus tour was organized and fans lined the streets, hoping to catch a glimpse of Gaza and the lads. After the World Cup, Gaza was everywhere. He was on TV promoting aftershave, potato chips, sportswear, appearing on talk shows. So you're in a position that most young men would say is a dream. Um, but it could turn out to be a nightmare, you know. Could be, but I'm, I'm trying my best not to let it turn out that way, you know. When I get as famous as you, then maybe I'll start worrying like. <laughs> You're, you're more famous than anybody in the world. English soccer had its star. And the game began to change. Across the country, clubs started to upgrade their stadiums, to make them safer, to make sure nothing like Hillsborough ever happened again. It was starting to feel safe to go back to soccer matches in England. Everybody looked forward to the start of the new season in the autumn of 1990. And I remember an old friend of mine sending me a message from the first game of the new season saying the ground is packed and there are women here. (laughs) It took off straight away, the change. You know, the return to it being safe and acceptable for everyone to enjoy football. In 1992, the English Premier League was formed. 
Over the course of the next decade, it established itself as the richest and most popular league in the world. Here's Cantona. He's done it. The crumbling concrete stadiums of the past were replaced by gleaming megadomes that looked like they were constructed from, I don't know, recycled spaceships or something. And the terraces were ripped out and seats were installed. And Gaza was replaced by David Beckham. And England had a player with the feet of a poet and a pop star's hair. And Beckham saw Sullivan off his line. Oh, that is absolutely phenomenal. At the end of the 80s, English soccer was a disease. Now, it's a product, sold all over the world. It's estimated that the Premier League is now watched in nearly 200 countries and in more than 600 million homes. The game's changed a lot in 30 years. Now, I know soccer teams usually announce their lineups before the game, but I'm going to share ours now. Our starting producers are Emma Morgenstern, Emily Ulbricht, and Gofan Mbutubwele. Our super subs are Anna Foley and Jasmine Romero. Our captain is senior producer Matt Nelson. And our coaches are editors Caitlin Kenny, Devin Taylor, and Jessica Weisberg. Now, not sure there's a good soccer metaphor for this, but sound design and mixing and music by the one, the only, Bobby Lord. What, what would be your metaphor for that? For the sound design and mixing guy? What is Bobby? The team physio. Yeah. He fixes all our mistakes. He fixes all my mistakes. Or... Yeah, 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 yeah. Our fact checker is referee Max Gibson. You were tough, but fair. Special thanks to Victoria Barner, Joe Sykes, Ben Green, Kevin Sampson, Steve Kelly, and David Hardman. Adrian Tempany wrote a book about his experience at Hillsborough and how it changed English soccer. It's called, And the Sun Shines Now, How Hillsborough and the Premier League Changed Britain. Join us for our next episode. It's all about the U.S. men's national team's heroic quest to make the 1990 World Cup, the one we were just talking about today. We're just a bunch of kids trying to get U.S. soccer to qualify to a senior World Cup somehow. We Came to Win is a production of Gimlet Media in association with Fusion. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Or maybe just start chanting, we came to win, we came to win, whatever you feel most comfortable with. For photos and bonus content, follow Gimlet Media on Twitter. The handle is at Gimlet Media. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, so use the hashtag we came to win and tell us what you think. And now I'll leave you with some wise words from the golden boy himself. Gary Lineker, who once said, football is a simple game. 22 men chase a ball for 90 minutes, and at the end, the Germans always win. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of We Came to Win. You can listen to all episodes for free, only on Spotify. Spotify.